If you're a regular listener to the Van City podcast and believe in what the church is doing, consider supporting Van City financially. Full disclosure, our church is small and in the throes of an ongoing struggle to make budget and to grow in the spiritual discipline of generosity. If you want to help out, visit vancity.church/give. I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part 10 in the series, The True and False Self, Filled with All the Fullness of God. This part of everyone's story ends the same way. All of us, one day, will die. And though death is God's enemy, preparing for death is part of what it means to embrace the true self, living and dying well. This is Fred. Fred, yeah, my son Beck named him after Fred Meyer, uh, who is also dead. Is he? Yeah. Fred uh, lives in my office as my own personal memento mori. A memento mori is a symbolic visual motif that rose to prominence in the medieval period. Painters and sculptors and woodcutters, all manner of artists across their respective mediums began depicting things like skulls or wilting flowers and sand passing through an hourglass. Memento mori is Latin, and you can translate it a handful of ways. It is, remember that you have to die, or remember you must die, or even simpler, remember your death. And both the phrase and the trope have their origins in the Christian tradition. But artistic reminders of death, human skulls and femur bones, were eventually ushered from the polite conversation of the modern Western world, anywhere where death itself became an uncivilized taboo, best left to heavy metal album covers and the fashion sensibilities of angsty goth teenagers. In my 11th grade art class... I once painted a golden skull, not unlike Fred here, and my art teacher, Miss Johnson, hovered over the canvas with a disapproving glower, and she asked through her teeth, what does a skull represent, Josh? And I said, death? I, I assumed that the question was rhetorical, and that's what she wanted to hear. And Miss Johnson told me, Yes, and Jesus represents life. I thought you were a Christian. And she walked away sighing, clicking her tongue. This is Georgia, by the way. This probably wouldn't happen in the uh, Vancouver or Portland public school system. Tisk, 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 she said. But if Miss Johnson took a small tour of Christian holy sites throughout the world, she would find more skulls than she would know what to do with. Inside the St. Baptist or St. John the Baptist Church in England, there sits the tomb of a woman named Diana Warburton, which features a depiction of her skeleton unfurling her own obituary. If there is any money left in the budget when I'm gone, do this for me, Tab. Will you see to it as an overseer of the church? <laughs> Even if it's the little bit that pushes us over the edge and we have to close shop. 
Or she could travel to the parish church in Bavaria where she'd find the mortal remains of Christian martyrs now ornate and bejeweled and forever propped up in the place of prayer and worship. From there, she could hop a plane west. Mrs. Johnson, you'll find the blackened skull of Mary Magdalene in a golden reliquary at the Basilica in the south of France. Or go to Italy, Mrs. Johnson, to see the flower-crowned skull of St. Valentine in the Basilica of Santa Maria. But before you head back to Georgia, Mrs. Johnson, make one last stop in Poland to visit St. Bartholomew's Church, which looks like this on the outside, right, and this on the inside, festooned with tens of thousands of actual human skulls and skeletons, all casualties of the Thirty Years' War, where these innumerable bones have been repurposed into great sprawling displays and macabre chandeliers. I doubt that this is a pilgrimage Miss Johnson would have cared to take. Miss Johnson not only claimed Christianity, but claimed a Christian aversion to death and its symbols. Miss Johnson, who likely wore a crucifix or who sat beneath one every Sunday, perhaps forgetting what that means. Which is more offensive, the skull all of us have in our heads or a pagan instrument of torture and death? And how has Christianity so domesticated the cross that it offends less than a skull? Most of us, we're afraid of dying. We think of death as inappropriate, ill-fitted for table talk. We know that everyone we love will, like us, die. But we'd rather live as, with, as if we did not know this, so we try, and we procrastinate like one refusing to study for a test they know is coming, pretending there's more time, I'll do it tomorrow. Turn in your Bibles to the book we call James in the New Testament. James, we are now nearing the end of what has been our months-long conversation about the true and false self, about moving beyond an intellectual awareness of God's love and into believing and knowing that we really are the beloved of God. Now, last week, I argued that the landmark attribute of life as the beloved is our capacity to bless others to move beyond obligatory modes of compulsive obedience and into self-sacrificial love as an outpouring of our own assurance of and security in our identity as God's beloved daughters, God's beloved sons. When we know the true self, there is no need for anxiety, no need to feel threatened by other people, to cling to what we believe is ours. All is gift And all can be given away in the gracious security of the Father's abundance. The journey to give our lives away culminates in the quest to one day give our deaths away. It's not an aspiration unique to only certain disciples of Jesus in certain seasons of life because the inevitability of death is ever before us, all of us. In the New Testament, James argues that the unpredictable transience of our narrow lifespan should make us reliant on God. Let's read from James chapter 4. Would you guys stand with me as a gesture of reverence and respect for the reading of Scripture? Let's read James 4 beginning with verse 13. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. 
These words are inspired by God. Go ahead and grab a seat. Whether we want to be movie stars or school teachers, homeschool moms, CEOs, most of us tend to subconsciously assume that we are the center of our own little universe. And why shouldn't we? Our experience is all we have. We see the world through our eyes and experience it through our unique modes of thinking and feeling, so we figure I'm the star of my own show. An Irish academic named Nick Hughes argues this, humanity occupies a very small place in an unfathomably vast universe. Traveling at the speed of light, 671 million miles per hour, it would take us 100,000 years to cross the Milky Way. But we still wouldn't have gone very far. By recent estimates, the Milky Way is just one of two trillion galaxies in the observable universe, and the region of space that they occupy spans at least 90 billion light years. If you imagine Earth shrunk down to the size of a single grain of sand, and you imagine the size of that grain of sand relative to the entirety of the Sahara Desert, you are still nowhere near to comprehending how infinitesimally small a position we occupy in space. And in the incredible bigness of God's creative brilliance, our story is less than a speck on the canvas timelines that our minds can't begin to comprehend. Watch this. Who can name either or both of these species? Anyone? Yeah, and? And Stegosaurus, right. Tyrannosaurus rex and Stegosaurus. The problem is, scientists argue that Stegosaurus lived during the late Jurassic period, which is between 156 or 144 million years ago, while Tyrannosaurus lived during the late Cretaceous period, which is about 67 or 65 million years ago, meaning there is more time between T-Rex and Stegosaurus than between T-Rex and an iPhone. And even those periods are a blip on the timeline of God's likely, based on which scientists you ask, 13.8 billion year creative mastery of which humanity is a blip of a blip. And for James, the majesty of God's creative genius contrasted against our finite smallness should put things in perspective. We are, in his words, a mist or a vapor, some of your translations say. We're here today, gone tomorrow. When we do talk about death, we sentimentalize it, we soften it, we domesticate it. When we experience death, we rush our anger and grief and existential dread into the cloudy, unknowable comforts of heaven. And we deny ourselves and others the agony of grief because agony is unbecoming. Because we believe that agony is indicative of faithlessness, of spiritual bankruptcy, or because we can't bear to go on hurting. And then we forget Jesus who agonized in the garden over death. We forget Jesus who, when confronted with the ugliness of death, wept. Death is not beautiful. It does not flow from the redemptive purposes of God. It is not ordained by God, not sanctioned by Him. Death is, in the language of Paul, an enemy of God, an invasive parasitic vine coiling upward from the broken surface of a world marred by sin. The wages of sin is death. Death is not beautiful, not inherently meaningful, and this terrifies us. Recently, I heard someone muse about death as if it were God's good concession. It's merciful, they said, that God allows us to die rather than go on suffering in broken bodies and in a broken world. 
But thinking of this kind presumes the world and our bodies were meant to be broken and that death was God's idea, his plan. They weren't, and it wasn't. God is not the author of suffering and death. He is not up to something in our dying. Death is not beautiful. And yet, just as God, the good Father, God, the brilliant artist, God of infinite wisdom and intelligence and creative power can subvert evil and bring good out of that which he does not ordain, God can do good for others in our dying. But the way we die is contingent on the way we live. In his book, Life of the Beloved, Henry Nouwen argues, yes, there is such a thing as a good death. We ourselves are responsible for the way we die. We have to choose between clinging to life in such a way that death becomes nothing but a failure or letting go of life in freedom so that we can be given to others as a source of hope. This is a crucial choice, and we have to work on that choice every day of our lives. Death does not have to be our final failure, our final defeat in the struggle of life, our unavoidable fate. If our deepest human desire is indeed to give ourselves to others, then we can make our death into a final gift. It is so wonderful to see how fruitful death is when it is a free gift, which is a very hard concept to understand. I think of two different funerals that I observed as something of a spectator. The first funeral I watched as mostly an outsider because of the pandemic, the service was streamed online for those unable to secure travel. But who had been touched by the life of this man, now gone? And it was obvious just from watching it on a screen and the succession of individuals who lined up behind the pulpit to share story after story that the life of this man had honored them and been a gift to them. And it was, I think, the appropriate marriage of grief and celebration. He's gone and we're hurting in ways that we can scarcely articulate, but he was here. And we are grateful, even joyful in ways that similarly defy explanation because he lived well and he died well. In his wonderful book, Sacred Fire, Ronald Rollheiser argues that the purpose of discipleship or the goal of discipleship is to die with a warm, forgiving heart. Poetically, he likens this kind of dying to the blood and water poured out from Jesus' body in death. Water as a symbol of cleansing, blood as a symbol of giving life. When someone dies well, Even in the pain and grief of their going, the life and death they've given away cleanse those who knew and loved them, creating more life for them having been here. I remember another funeral, a little rabble of mixed family, many of them not knowing one another. And the service was not an outpouring of blood and water, of cleansing and life, but scattered memories and grasping at straws for meaning and the undignified chaos of death of a heart that stopped beating when it was, for all we could tell, cold and unforgiving and unreconciled. So there were a few spiritual platitudes, someone awkwardly, clumsily attempting to shoehorn Jesus into the biography of the deceased, presumably unwilling to sit before the heavenless meaninglessness of death. There are deaths that For all the very real, very justified pain and agony that settles over those in death's wake, yet release life-giving peace and purpose. And there are deaths that leave their survivors with anything but peace 
Instead, a sense of anxious guilt and seemingly irredeemable sorrow settle over the living. Think of your life and death as seeds that you plant simply by living and dying, seeds that will replicate and reproduce. A life and death carried out by the true self are lives and deaths of security and peace, a life and death of the beloved. But the false self lives and dies in anxiety, insecurity, panic, and dread. They cannot die well because there is no peace beyond the black veil. They cannot give their death away because they did not give their lives away. And so part of learning to embrace the true self is preparing for death. Rollheiser argues that there are three phases of discipleship to Jesus. It begins with essential discipleship, which he argues is the struggle to get our lives together. And then mature discipleship, which becomes the struggle to give our lives away before finally radical discipleship, which is the struggle to give our deaths away. And he likens this journey to three prayers articulated by Greek writer Nikos Kazantzakis. Three kinds of souls, three prayers. The first, I am a bow in your hands, Lord. Draw me, lest I rot. The second, do not overdraw me, Lord. I shall break. And then finally, in radical discipleship, overdraw me, Lord, and who cares if I break? How do we prepare for death? One fundamental way, Rollheiser argues, is by standing where you are supposed to be standing. See, Rollheiser had a cousin that was killed in a horrific industrial accident. The man was loading railway cars with grain when a cable pulling the cars away snapped, releasing thousands of pounds of tension, and it cut the man in half. And this exemplifies the great, stupid horror and injustice of death. And yet... When his family examined the man's final days, days neither they nor he knew would be his last, a beautiful motif flowered from the final chapter of his life. This man had led a simple life. He did not found nonprofits nor work amongst lepers in Calcutta. He did not write books or make art or touch the lives of millions of people. What he had done with those precious final days and nights before his life concluded in violent tragedy, he'd gone to visit his mother and sat with her, and kissed her. And he had taken his youngest brother, who idolized him, to watch baseball games. And he had somehow, without fireworks or fanfare, inadvertently parted on good and peaceful terms with everyone he knew, simply by living the way he always did. And on the day he died, he was doing his job. He was working honestly, faithfully, and he was standing where he was supposed to be standing. When the chaos of death seized him, as it will seize all of us, had he not been there, it would have been someone else. And isn't this all we can do, really, is stand where we're supposed to be standing, a life of integrity, a life given to others? In essence, Rollheiser argues, we can be faithful, true to those whom we love and true to what we believe in. We can be at our post in commitment, love, and duty. You know, it's funny, if you've been here for a little stretch, you probably gathered the whole talking about death thing isn't exactly a rare or special occasion at Van City. In fact, 
I heard this hilarious story recently about someone from another church, great church, uh, that was talking to someone that goes to church at Van City, and the, the Van City person has kind of like, that's their one experience of church. So this other church had hosted this really beautiful, really meaningful uh, Ash Wednesday service, as lots of churches um, nearby had done, something we haven't done quite yet. And so this person from Van City was like, oh, I don't know what that is. Tell me about that. What's it like? What's it about? And the other person became serious and was saying, man, it was heavy. I've never been to church like this before. We actually talked about the fact that we're going to die one day. It was heavy. It was, it was crazy. And the Van City person was like, what? that's every Sunday. That's like Easter and Christmas and Labor Day. So sure, we've been here before. But the misconception, I think, is that we often broach the taboo of dying because we have a morbid curiosity or because I have a dark sense of humor. I do, but that's not why. We talk about dying because we're all going to do it. And the Christian tradition has for centuries grappled with the importance of dying well. Awareness of your own mortality is not about fear. It's not about nihilism or morbidity. It's about standing where you are supposed to be standing, living the life of the beloved, giving your life away so that when you die, not if, but when your life becomes the cleansing water, the healing blood poured out over those who will grieve your going, but celebrate your living. Dying isn't beautiful, but giving yourself away is. And I can think of few more beautiful feats of God's willingness to subvert evil than his ability to snatch even the victory of death from the enemy's eager hands. Yes, we hurt. Yes, we grieve. But death is robbed of its ultimate victory, denied its once great sting. Dying isn't beautiful, but giving yourself away is. A life well lived and death well done allow for both the ugly heartbreak of death and the peace and joy of a life given in love to live in the same place. When beloved filmmaker and Muppet creator Jim Henson died in 1990, his close friend and longtime right-hand collaborator, Frank Oz, spoke at one of his Henson's public memorials in Manhattan. Frank Oz, if you don't know, uh, voiced and puppeteered everyone from Miss Piggy to Yoda, and he also played Sesame Street's Bert to Jim Henson's Ernie. And at Henson's memorial, Frank Oz chose this single story to exemplify his friend Jim and their friendship together. To packed pews in the Cathedral of St. John, Oz recalled an evening when his Henson, who was giggling to himself, had convinced Frank Oz to pose for an unusual picture, promising him that it was for a good reason and he would figure it out later. Then a bunch of time passed. There was no mention of the photo until Christmas came. This is what he said about it. It was Christmas time. <laughs> He gave me a gift. The gift was about this large, I have it. And the gift, I'll describe it to you, it's difficult. It's more like a, made of some of Bert's toys and, a, and it was a wall hanging sculpture kind of thing, about this big. And it was a head of Bert and Bert's arms are holding a ledge. And on the ledge are about a dozen little birds, tiny birds, you can buy in the stores at that time, about an inch and a half high. And you could turn them in different directions, looking over there, looking over there, and looking back at the big bird's head while the big bird was looking down at the little birds. And 
On that ledge underneath the Burt's were faces, photographs that Jim obviously took of many of the shop people, the workshop people, several of which were responsible in the making of Burt and certainly all of which were responsible in the making of the Muppets. And they were all looking up the camera and their little faces, about that big, all along the top of the ledge. On the edge of this wooden ledge, Jim had painted layers, like earth striations, which were really, I gather, layers of Bert's mind. <laughs> layers of his soul. By the way, I do Bert to Jim's Ernie. Um, and within those layers, the striations, he painted textures, beautiful little textures. And then I noticed Bert's eyes, the large Bert, Bert's eyes were, the pupils were cut out. And you look inside Bert's brain, and there I am, naked, <laughs> looking at this. I knew he had a good reason. I say that to share that with you. Oh, by the way, he entitled it Bert in Self-Contemplation. <laughs> I share it with you because so much of Jim is in that gift. The, the detail that he loved so much, Persian rugs and trees and life, the detail in the layers the textures, he had so much fun. I just see him hunched over, real gleeful, giggling, doing this. And I could see him just cutting those little photos out so he doesn't cut the ears or the nose off of the photo people, and he pasted them on himself. And the generosity of time in order to do this when he was so busy, the generosity of, of taking the time to do it, and, and not only the giving of the gift, but the anticipation of giving. I, I can't tell you so many times Jim would say to me, oh, I can't wait to give this gift to Janie or Brian or Davey or whoever. The anticipation of giving was so wonderful with Jim. And, and the complexity of that gift, Bert looking at himself, me inside, the little Bert's looking all around, the complexity, inward, inwardness of that, and the simplicity of the concept was also Jim. And, and the quality of the gift, and the craftsmanship, it all speaks so much of Jim, that gift. And I think the love, I think that's what I knew. He loved me and I love him. I've seen this video a lot over the years and I think it's an incredible moment of love and pain in the same place of grief made to coexist along joy and celebration. Jim Henson had given so much of himself away in this Christmas present to a dear friend that remembering it years later, Frank Oz admits, I think that that's when I knew he loved me before he adds through a choked sob, and I loved him. Can we learn to live in such a way that our lives become that gift that evidences self-sacrificial love for others, unleashing even in death a blessing over them, that those we love weeping can say in our leaving with confidence, I knew that they loved me and I loved them. 
Maybe your life will be marked by extraordinary feats and extend out beyond the narrow confines of the individual. Maybe you'll do something big, something remarkable. But the big life, the remarkable life, is not necessarily a life given away in self-sacrificial love. The big life is not necessarily the life of the beloved. The life of blessing is the smallness, the visit to one's mother, the taking a little brother to a baseball game, standing where you're supposed to be standing, the Christmas gift that continues to speak years later. In his last weeks of school, my son Beck made me this uh, Father's Day card. Opens like an accordion. It was an assignment given to him. And it was tiled with uh, little paper cutouts, each of which had a prompt written on it already that it was his responsibility to fill in the answers. Things like, my dad is good at dot, 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 or my favorite thing to do with my dad is dot, dot, dot. And in one of these boxes, Beck had drawn a picture of him and me playing video games together, and he wrote, uh, my dad helps me beat bosses. And it, it hit me in the moment that, uh, you know, I like playing Nintendo games with my kid. When he was learning to first play his first Legend of Zelda game, he had the control. He would hand the controller to me when some big lumbering boss would come on screen. And those moments are, are precious to me, but they won't impress anyone at a public memorial or anything. Like, they played a lot of Nintendo, and he beat the bosses. But my eight-year-old son didn't write anything in the card about me being a pastor or an author or the kinds of things that I might consider impressive accomplishments. He wrote, he helps me beat bosses. And he looked at me as I read it, smiling really big, and asked him, did you understand what I meant? Yeah, I understand. It's pretty clear. It's just a simple way for us to be together. And it's something that means something to him, how he knows I love him, to share something with him. It's that visit to the mother or the baseball game with the little brother or the Christmas gift with a silly, embarrassing photo inside. And when I sit with my son battling monsters and laughing and passing the controller back and forth, I'm me. I feel no anxious insecurity or debilitating worry or panic or paranoia or dread or isolation. And I experience the love of God so easily through my kids because I can't help but love them. And my love is only a reflection of the Father in heaven who loves me the same way and better. And maybe if I died tomorrow, that might be the kind of thing Beck would say. My dad helped me beat bosses. That's where I was supposed to be at the time. Making your life a life lived as the true self, a life of blessing, a life given away is in no small way about learning to master an un unanxious presence, wholly centered in the here and now, but without forgetting that this part of our story ends the same way for everyone. And so we live not only for the present moment, but in the hopes that even in death, others will be able to say, her life was a gift. His life, his story was cleansing, healing, a life and death given away. To end, one more thing from Henry Nouwen who writes this, the death of the beloved bears fruit in many lives. You and I have to trust that our short little lives can bear fruit far beyond the boundaries of our chronologies, but we have to choose this and trust deeply that we have a spirit to send that will bring joy, peace, and life to those who will remember us. Jesus, our master, our teacher, our Lord, faced death before us 
And Jesus confronted the full agony of death and dying, the injustice and humiliation of death. And in dying, he made a way for us to know freedom and peace. And you, will, you and I will not die for the sins of the world, but we will die like Jesus. And like Jesus, we can transform the injustice and evil of our dying into a gift of freedom and peace for others by a life given away, a life of self-sacrificial love. Memento mori. Remember, you have to die. In my junior year, my art teacher, Mrs. Johnson, if she were to tour the chapels and cathedrals of Europe, she might have been surprised to walk beneath great tapestries of bone and pillars of skulls and spinal columns and florid reliquaries and moldering bones. And maybe Mrs. Johnson would think of her own mortal remains, consider the time she had left, struck by the leveling majesty of death, the universal inevitability of it. And maybe she'd think of saints and sinners who once wore those bones in life, Mary Magdalene or St. Valentine. Or maybe she'd think of people she knew and loved whose lives were gift and who died like Mary Magdalene and like she will and like everyone will. And maybe she'd feel less offended by these reminders of death and stand in defiance of its awful reach. All of us die, but we follow a master who teaches us to give our lives and deaths away secure as the beloved in both and who grows from the pain and agony and grief of dying blessing and hope. It's up to us to die with warm, forgiving hearts, whether our season of life puts death on the not-so-distant horizon or it seems distant and unknowable. It could be here tomorrow either way. Stand where you are supposed to be standing. Once more from now and how different would our life be were we truly able to trust that it multiplied in being given away? How different would our life be if we could but believe that every little act of faithfulness, every gesture of life, every word of forgiveness, every little bit of joy and peace will multiply and multiply as long as there are people to receive it? Could you ever be depressed, angry, resentful, or vengeful? Could you ever hate, destroy, or kill? Could you ever despair of the meaning of your short earthly existence? You and I would dance for joy were we to know truly that we, little people, are chosen, blessed, and broken to become the bread that multiplies itself in the giving. You and I would no longer fear death, but live toward it as the culmination of our desire to make all of ourselves a gift for others. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.